Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and Sociology podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my privilege to be in dialogue with Dr. Donald Burns. He is the founder of the Burns Center for Policy Research at the Colorado Center on Law and Policy. We will be discussing his newly published book. He has written this book alongside Kevin Adler, Amanda Ban, and Adriana Bilbiha. The book is titled When We Walk By, Forgotten Humanity, Broken Systems, and the Role We Can Each Play in Ending Homelessness in America, published in Berkeley, California by North Atlantic Books 2023. Donald, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, asking me to participate in this uh, conversation. I appreciate it, Ari. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Um, To the extent that you would feel comfortable, can you tell us about the personal origins of your interest in homelessness. Can you share with us the autobiographical origins of the research interests that motivate your scholarship? In the 80s, I was, uh, and I decided that um, I really wanted to do something else. And I reflected back on a wonderful experience I had uh, doing uh, volunteer work as a, a volunteer for mission in St. Louis, Missouri, in which I uh, worked in a, a low-income uh, black neighborhood. And um, I wanted to replicate that. And so in 1985-86, uh, I became the executive director of the Samaritan Ministry of Greater Washington, uh, in Washington, D.C., and we uh, provided various kinds of services for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, that was the beginning of my interest in uh, and commitment to uh, this uh, work. Um, I, I've essentially been working on the issue of homelessness for the last uh, almost 40 years. Uh, had most recently uh, moved to Denver uh, in 2003. So I've been here in Denver working on the issue for uh, exactly 20 years. Um, This is now the fourth book I've written, um, and I'm involved in uh, some other studies about the issue of uh, homelessness. So um, somehow I don't 
really want to stop. Uh, people ask me, so uh, how successful have you been in addressing homelessness? My response is, well, there are more homeless folks experiencing homelessness now than there were 40 years ago I started. So clearly I'm having great success. Um, but um, it's like the Sisyphus and pushing that rock up the darn hill. Um, I can't stop. So uh, I hope eventually that we'll uh, truly address the problem. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Uh, the inspiration came from my co-author, Kevin Adler. Uh, he was working in a program called Miracle Messages, uh, which involved creating uh, opportunities for people living on the streets to reconnect to their families. Uh, and he inspired me by his work. And at one point asked me whether I was interested in working on a uh, new book uh, with him. Uh, and because of my uh, respect and admiration for Kevin, I said yes. Uh, that, it turns out, was about four, almost five years ago. And we have been working on this now for the past uh, three and a half years. So, um, much more of a focus on have the privilege of housing, uh, feel about, and uh, <clears throat> direct attention to those experiencing homelessness. Um, and so this is really a significant part of the approach here. It's, as we say in the, in the uh, subtitle, the forgotten humanity that most of us uh, demonstrate in thinking about people experiencing homelessness. Mm. Can you summarize your book for us? What are the main themes and stories conveyed in this work? Well, first of all, uh, one of the things that uh, readers will find is lots of individual stories about people uh, experiencing homelessness. Uh, many of whom uh, were directly or indirectly involved in the uh, Miracle Messages program in um, San Francisco that uh, my colleague Kevin Adler ran. Um, and we used those stories as jumping off points for uh, discussing various aspects of the book. Uh, one of the most significant and parts of the book, the way in which this book really uh, is different from uh, many of them is the issue of how we as housed people relate to people who don't have housing. And uh, it's what uh, we call in the book relational Poverty. And let me take a moment to uh, demonstrate what I mean about relational poverty. One of the most significant aspects of uh, people experiencing homelessness is um, a kind of sense of social action, uh, that they really are isolated from mainstream society, uh, and they don't have access to what Robert Butt calls um, so capital. Uh, 
And because of that, uh, they don't have networks of support. And if they do have uh, communities, uh, members of that community are not in a position to provide much uh, economic uh, support. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, because of that, uh, and we frame relationally in terms of networks of support and community. Uh, and the best I can throw that is, um, who do you call at two o'clock in the morning if you have a crisis? Uh, we all have people that we can call on, uh, spouses, significant others, uh, family members, uh, friends, neighbors, uh, people from our uh, church congregations, etc. People experiencing homelessness uh, don't have those kinds of networks. So that's a kind of relational poverty. Uh, I also think of relational poverty from the standpoint of those of us who are uh, in housing. So a poor relationship that we have through people experiencing homelessness. And uh, that's the other aspect of relational poverty that I think is really critical and which we try and bring out uh, in this book. Uh, we also, because of the way we talk about some of the systems that uh, impact homelessness, we're trying to demonstrate the intersectionality of the various systems. Uh, are uh, probably familiar with the concept of the social determinant. I want to turn that around and say the social, economic, and cultural determinants of homelessness. There are a lot of different aspects. So that is related to homelessness, uh, housing, here, employment, wages, uh, child care, uh, education, the foster care system, they're all related to homelessness. And we do people experiencing homelessness a great disservice if we approach each of these uh, arenas uh, in a silo. So we're trying to build uh, a better understanding of the intersectionality uh, of all of these aspects uh, and the need to focus on all. How does your book advance our understanding of relational poverty? Um, we talked about this in some detail. Uh, the part of the book is really about the humanity of homelessness and um, ways in which it, uh, in housing uh, tend to view uh, those uh, who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, in our book, we talk about the stereotypes, the negative stereotypes uh, that people uh, tend to have. Uh, we talk about the journal uh, that we tend to uh, demonstrate in uh, our approach to people in homelessness. Uh, we talk about the hyper individualism 
uh, that uh, is so much part of our culture. One of the things in all of this is that because of our negative uh, attitudes, people experiencing homelessness tend to feel ashamed. Uh, and because of the shame, uh, they don't want to admit uh, that they are in the unfortunate position of being without housing. Uh, and this is a direct result. Uh, this creates the direct result of a kind of relational poverty. People experiencing homelessness don't have access to the kinds of networks of support, the kinds of support that they typically need, uh, and therefore um, are at a serious disadvantage uh, in terms of maintaining um, a uh, lifestyle that is going to be uh, self-sufficient. Um, we try and document all of that in our book, particularly in the first part of the book. Um, the other piece of this, which I mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago, is um, the kinds of attitudes that most of us have uh, about people experiencing homelessness. And I'm doing some work uh, with some colleagues to try and understand uh, the underlying attitudes and values of people uh, who say, yeah, we think it's important to do something, but let's not do it in my backyard, the NIMBY uh, phenomenon. And I have really come to the conclusion that there is a basic xenophobia uh, that all of us have uh, and becomes quite pronounced on the part of people uh, in housing. Uh, they don't want people who are different from them uh, living near them. And xenophobia in terms of race uh, in terms of economic class, uh, in terms of sexual identity, uh, in terms of age, uh, in terms of all kinds of other things. People want to be surrounded by people who are like them. Uh, and this becomes a major problem. Uh, in Here in Denver, for example, uh, we have a number of situations in which we're trying to create uh, some mixed-income housing. Um, but um, the neighbors rise up uh, in uh, opposition to that, and so the project uh, disintegrates. Um, that kind of thing has got to stop. We've got to be able to create more opportunities or uh, developing houses, the kinds of services that uh, people experiencing homelessness need. Can you comment on the relationship between this book and your previous scholarship on homelessness? Yeah, as as I said uh, earlier, um, this is now my fourth book. Uh, my first book was written uh, 30 years ago, came out literally 30 years ago, and really focused on... Uh, substance abuse and mental illness uh, as a major factor um, in 
kind of the lives of people experiencing homelessness. Um, thanks to my responsibilities as a professor uh, in the graduate school of social work, um, I was teaching in a class on uh, homelessness. And I did that uh, framework uh, that was so much a part of my first book was basically uh, raw. And so I really had to shift gears. Uh, and I started thinking much more in terms of uh, systemic uh, explanations for our failure to uh, address homelessness. Um, the second book was, uh, it, it's kind of a um, textbook on uh, homelessness because it was written by a series of uh, experts around the country on various aspects of the issue. Uh, and then the third book, Journeys Out of Homelessness, was really a, an effort to get some people with lived experience to uh, document their stories. And then uh, my colleague Jamie Wright and I um, tried to uh, provide a policy perspective on some of the issues that each of the stories wrote uh, or explained. Uh, this book it has a major focus on our relationship with those uh, whom we can, many of us consider undeserving, uh, and the kinds of negative stereotypes, the kinds of stigma uh, that we attach to people experiencing homelessness. Uh, so there is a much greater emphasis uh, and exploration of uh, those relationships and the attitudes uh, I have uh, ever uh, written about in uh, earlier um, and studies that I've done. What misconceptions about persons experiencing homelessness does the study challenge? Why do these misconceptions exist and persist? Um, one of the attitudes is people experiencing homelessness are lazy, they're crazy, they're drugs, they're druggies, or they've made bad decisions. Uh, something like 60% of uh, Americans uh, have those kinds of attitudes about people experiencing homelessness. However, um, there are many more people in housing who are lazy, crazy, drunks, druggies, and who among us has never made a bad decision. So from that perspective, what's the difference between those in housing and those without housing? Uh, it's an issue of resources. People experiencing homelessness don't have the kinds of resources that they need to escape the kind of uh, homelessness uh, that they're experiencing. In addition, uh, another kind of attitude is get a job, you bum. Well, 45% of people experiencing homelessness are earning income from uh, paid employment. 45%, uh, and the rest uh, are not able to work 
primarily because of a disability or being elderly. So this notion that people are lazy and that there are a bunch of people lying around uh, not willing to work is simply not true. Um, and it's important for people to understand that. Uh, another aspect of this is um, people don't seem to understand that there are systemic barriers to uh, <clears throat> that prevent people from gaining housing uh, and gaining the kind of life situation that virtually all of them want. There was a major uh, study done here in Denver uh, about six months ago that uh, in which <clears throat> there were 800 surveys and 1,000 interviews, and 95 to 98 percent of the respondents said, if I was offered housing, I would take it. So that suggests that people really do want housing. They do want services. And what we're finding is that we're simply not providing them. Um, this is very different from the typical attitude of uh, many uh, people. Um, so why do these stereotypes continue? Why does this situation persist, as you mentioned? And, and I would argue that um, part of it is what I referring to before, xenophobia that you all have. Uh, we don't like people who are different from us. Um, and how you overcome that, I'm not sure. Uh, but it seems to me uh, that's a, a very topic that needs to be explored in detail. You know, Ari, this is not unrelated to the conversation you and I were having before we started Absolutely. this interview. Yeah. Um, so how do you get people past uh, the sort of um, visceral reactions they have uh, to situations? Uh, one of the things that I find really encouraging, and this is a, an outfit out of Houston, Texas, has developed a series of conversation guides for parents uh, in how they uh, talk to their kids about the issue of homelessness. Uh, I've read these guides, uh, and there are three different guides, one for ages, I think, 6 to 10, another for ages uh, 11 to 14, 15, and then a third for uh, older teens. They're very good. They're very good. Uh, as I like to say, uh, babies are not born with attitudes. They learn them. Uh, where did they learn them? They learn them from their parents, from uh, kids at school, uh, from neighbors, uh, from uh, the church. Uh, 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 community organizations, et cetera. Uh, how do we intervene in interactions and interviews? 
learn more positive attitudes about people experiencing homelessness. And that seems to me a critical part of um, what we need to be thinking about. What new initiatives to respond to homelessness do you feel most impressed by? Well, one of them is, um, call it universal basic income or guaranteed basic income. Um, it's the notion of providing people uh, money upfront with uh, no barriers to how they spend it. Uh, Andrew Yang, uh, in the 2020 um, election, was talking about uh, universal basic income. Uh, in Vancouver, Canada, uh, the New Leaf Project uh, started a basic income project uh, for experiencing homelessness there. Uh, very successful for a couple of years. And what they found was that the vast majority of the money that was given to people is being spent on housing, food, uh, health care, transportation, clothing, uh, exactly what uh, people would naturally be spending money on. Um, we have, we, when I say we, I'm talking about people in housing, and to say, you know, we know best what folks experiencing uh, homelessness, we know best what they need. Uh, so we give them money for uh, this particular thing or that particular thing. Uh, and it's a kind of paternalism uh, that is truly frightening. Uh, I don't know about Canada, Ari, but I know in this country, many of our federal benefit programs have the same kind of paternalism. Uh, when you get uh, food stamps, you can't spend food stamps on certain kinds of items. Uh, and um, the, the TANF, the um, welfare, again, it can only be spent on certain kinds of things. Because after all, us experts know better than you uh, what you need and what to spend money on. Well, the project in Vancouver and subsequent projects in Stockton uh, in San Francisco and now here in Denver have demonstrated that, you know, uh, people who get money who are in dire straits, they know darn well what to spend money on, probably better than we do. And there's a wonderful story in our book about Ronnie, uh, who was living on the streets, uh, and he was offered a voucher for housing uh, in a, a neighborhood that he had come from that was full of drugs uh, and substance abuse. And he turned it down, and Kevin asked him at one point, so, Ronnie, why did you turn down a housing voucher? And Ronnie said, well, uh, I am in recovery from drugs and alcohol. And I knew that if I took that housing voucher and moved into that unit, I'd be right back in the uh, community and neighborhood uh, where I was in such bad shape 
uh, in terms of drugs and alcohol. And I knew I'd relapse uh, and it'd be all over again. And I decided to wait and hope that eventually uh, I can get into the senior housing uh, that is much uh, better for me. Here are professionals who say, hey, Raleigh, uh, here's uh, a housing voucher. Uh, you should take it without thinking about what's best for Ronnie. And Ronnie was in a position to say, you know, I know what's good for me. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to turn down that voucher uh, and hope that uh, senior housing comes more. Uh, all of this demonstrates that, yes, people experiencing homelessness, they know what they need. They know what to spend money on. Um, so let's not, uh, not dictate to them uh, how we spend it. Um, uh, there are other kinds of things. Um, I, I think that the, uh, I've got some notes here, but um, it seems to me that uh, there are other kinds of things that I, I mentioned the uh, conversation guides uh, that uh, the organization in um, uh, has uh, demonstrated. And there are some new kinds of const uh, housing construction techniques like um, 3D printing housing uh, and um, shipping contain containers that are uh, providing some real optimism that we can figure out how to reduce the cost of construction. So. Uh, there are some exciting possibilities. People often ask me, uh, will we ever end homelessness? Um, my answer to that is there will always be a few people who, for whatever reason, are experiencing homelessness. What we can do is make it short-term, uh, one-time, uh, and very infrequent. And the example of what happened in the uh, from about 2011 to 2016-17, with um, strong political support from uh, President Obama and the Secretary of the VA, uh, Sean Donovan, uh, they got together and said, "We're going to solve veteran homelessness." The course of that five, six-year span, they reduced veteran homelessness by 50, over 50%, which means to me that if there's the political will and the resources, we can do a much better job uh, of addressing uh, homelessness. So that gives me uh, a sense of optimism. Your book's preface opens with the following quotation from Mother Teresa. If we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. That man, that woman, that child is my brother or sister. What does it mean? How does it relate to the subject matter that you deal with in this book? Um, there's a wonderful quote that we use uh, toward the beginning of the book. Um, and I, don't, I think it was Adam who uh, said this. 
uh, to Kevin. Uh, I didn't know I was homeless when I lost my housing. I only knew I was homeless when I lost my family and friends. Um, people don't seem to understand, and and it's it's one of Kevin's favorite expressions. Everybody is someone's somebody, which means uh, every person who is experiencing homelessness is a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, uh, aunt, an uncle, uh, a ch child of uh, parents. Uh, everybody is human. Everybody is a human being. And uh, that's exactly what I think uh, Mother Teresa was saying in that quote. Uh, and we need to recognize, as we think about people experiencing homelessness, that everyone is a human being. Everyone is somebody's somebody. And so um, that really helps me to think about when I see somebody uh, on the street or somebody panhandling, it's not, oh, there they are. It's, I wonder who that person is related to. Uh, and if we think about it in those terms, maybe we'll begin to have a more humane um, attitude about people experiencing homelessness. You write as follows. When most of us think about the homeless, we do not see the loneliness, the isolation, the exhaustion, the lack of agency in deciding even the most basic choices of the day, what to eat, when to eat, when to use the bathroom and bathe, where to sleep, who to interact with, how to feel safe. We do not see the stories of bravery, the fortitude it takes to live in a society where no one seems to acknowledge your presence, let alone your inherent dignity. We are not confronted with the mental and physical resilience that our unhoused neighbors must exert to survive days, weeks, months, years, or even decades of relational poverty and housing insecurity, almost always amid chronic illness, untreated injury, and ongoing trauma. The experience of homelessness is foreign and incomprehensible to most of us, and frankly, we prefer to keep it that way. Can you expand on this observation? Uh, this gets back to something I've mentioned before. Um, people experiencing homelessness are them. Uh, we're us. They are them. We tend to otherize people experiencing homelessness as uh, different from us, as close to being subhuman. Um, and we try not, well, we, in our, in terms of our basic values, we don't stop and think about all of the characteristics that are described in what you just read, Ari. Um, and their, their circumstances are different from ours, and yet our only way of thinking about them is they don't have housing. Um, how many of us would like to be considered the housed uh, at we tend to think of those people experiencing homelessness 
as a monolith, as a single group of people uh, who have this uh, very negative characteristic, i.e. they're not in housing. Um, again, it comes back to a xenophobia, a fear of those who are different from us. Uh, and we don't recognize people as our brothers and sisters, our aunts and uncles. Uh, there's this wonderful experiment that was done in 2014 in New York City. Uh, an organization there uh, identified five large families, and in each of the families, uh, they selected an individual member of, of the five families to pretend to be homeless for a day. So they dressed these people up, sat them on a sidewalk uh, in ratty clothes with kind uh, of ratty conditions. Uh, and then, uh, and all of this was unbeknownst to the other members of the family. And then during the course of the day, they asked the other family members to walk by uh, these folks uh, on more than one occasion. Nobody recognized or stopped to think about uh, the condition of any of their family members. So uh, at the end of the day, all the families were reunited, and the family members were simply aghast and totally embarrassed that one person had not recognized his wife, uh, another person had not recognized his brother. A third had not recognized his sister. Uh, a fourth had not recognized his uncle. Um, we don't see. It doesn't register. Um, which is why we entitled the book, When We Walk By, because that is so often the case. Uh, people ask me about employment. And I say, you know, if you start to think about it, people who are panhandling on the corner at a traffic light may have the worst job in the world. They are standing there for four, six, eight hours. 95% of the people who pass them by try to ignore them. Uh, and in return for all of that, they get paltry wages. Now, is that the kind of job that most people want? We don't think that way when we're at a stoplight. One of my favorite stories is uh, here in Denver, I was stopped at a, uh, a traffic light. There was a young guy with a sign that said, please uh, help me. Uh, I'm not cute enough to get into housing. And I was there at the stoplight, red light. Uh, so I rolled down my window and said, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to give you, but I think you are cute enough. And he laughed, he slapped his leg and said, you know, that's the funniest thing I've heard all week. Thank you so much for this. Uh, and then he said, Good day, my friend. And 
I realized all I had to do was simply acknowledge you. And that made so much of a difference. And yet here in this quote, we simply don't think about, we don't acknowledge what people experiencing homelessness are going through. Um, and, you know, if we're forced to do it, it makes us very uncomfortable. Um, so we prefer to keep it that way. What new insights are presented in your study regarding housing policy? What debates regarding housing policy does your study address? Um, there are all kinds of things in terms of housing policy. Um, and it's it's a very complicated issue. Um, the, one of the things, uh, and I'm, let me talk first about some of the problems and then some of the things that we are, are uh suggesting as solutions. Um, one of the things is the cost of housing. Uh, and uh, I don't remember whether uh, we talked about this uh, in our earlier conversation, but um, the national low-income uh, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition uh, uses something called the housing wage, which is uh, how much you have to make on an hourly basis to afford an, an average two-bedroom housing unit in your community. Uh, there is no state in the country where the minimum wage is anything close to the housing wage uh, for a two-bedroom unit. Uh, and and uh, the other thing I should mention is that uh, um, the housing wage is an hourly wage uh, for a two-bedroom housing unit without spending more than 30% of your income. Um, in only 32 or 33 counties, counties in the country, i.e. about 1% of all the counties in the country, is the minimum wage enough to afford a one-bedroom housing unit without spending more than 30%. Um, so the cost of housing is astronomical and it's getting worse. Uh, another barrier, uh, we have in this country a housing deficit of eight million housing units. Uh, and in most states, for every 100 people who need housing, there are only anywhere from 15 to 30 housing units available. So it, with, there's a huge deficit in terms of available units of housing. Uh, another problem is uh, housing vouchers. Uh, and this is the... Uh, current U.S. approach to providing housing subsidies. Um, only a quarter of the people who are only a quarter of the people receiving room. Um, and even if you get a housing voucher, there's no guarantee you'll be able to use it. I was in a situation uh, studying uh, one of the suburban counties 
uh, here in the Denver metro area. And uh, they, uh, Adam, this was Adams County, they handed out one year uh, 1,400 housing vouchers. And 60% of those came back at the end of the year unused because either there weren't any housing units available or landlords refused to rent to people with a housing voucher uh, because uh, they had uh, various reasons for uh, refusing uh, to accept the voucher. Um, in addition, there are not enough low-income housing tax credits to allow developers to develop uh, multifamily dwellings. Um, and uh, most developers will tell you that they can't afford to develop low-income housing unless they have the tax credits because that helps to offset the cost uh, of, of developing housing. And one of the things that's going to really uh, come into play in the next few uh, years is that even those complexes where uh, they have uh, housing tax credits, uh, after 20 to 30 years, those tax credits end. So those units become market rate housing, which will make, mean that they're beyond uh, the ability of uh, low-income families to rent them. Um, <clears throat> also, uh, we have this awful way in this country of uh, criminalizing people experiencing homelessness. Uh, and there are uh, <clears throat> the uh, local ordinances about sleeping in public, about sitting or lying in public, uh, about handing out food in public. Um, <clears throat> all of this criminalizes uh, the kinds of situations uh, that most people who are living on the streets uh, are experiencing. And, you know, I was talking with somebody uh, who um, was talking with me the other day, and uh, she was saying that uh, a friend of hers uh, had to uh, spend money to uh, clear up human waste uh, in their neighborhood. And I said to her, it's as though local officials had never heard of a porta potty, uh, had never heard of trash receptacles. Uh, why can't we provide the kinds of minimal services for people experiencing homelessness who are living on the streets? Um, why aren't we building more permanent housing? Why aren't we creating more uh, transitional housing of various kinds? And by that, I mean safe outdoor spaces, um, tiny home villages, pallet uh, home villages. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things we could be doing. Uh, another barrier is... Um, land use and zoning ordinances. In most cities in this country, uh, 75 to 80% of the land 
is zoned for single-family dwellings, which means and build multifamily dwellings on any of that land. Uh, this is a natural barrier to the development of uh, multifamily dwell, uh, complexes. Uh, so we've got to change land use and zoning uh, restrictions. So those are some of the kinds of barriers that we have created in terms of housing. And in our book, uh, we have some very concrete suggestions about uh, how to overcome some of those barriers. The other thing I would add is um, in New York City, and now in a couple of other locations around the country, there is a right to shelter, uh, which uh, has been very important in New York City. And there are three states, uh, not, not remembering which they are, uh, have a statewide right to housing, an uh, international push to create a right to housing. And uh, I uh, we argue in our book for uh, a, a countrywide right to housing. So those are some of the kinds of things uh, that we talk about, uh, both in terms of barriers um, and in terms of uh, possible solutions. Another quotation by Mother Teresa appears in your book. We think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked, and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. Can you interpret her words for us? How is it relevant to your study? Well, let me go back to a quotation that I uh, articulated uh, before in our conversation. Adam is homeless when I lost my housing. I only realized I was homeless when I lost my family and friends. Um, one of the things we have to understand is that um, relational poverty is just as important as economic poverty. People need other people. We need networks of support. And without that, um, we are in desperate need. If you look at uh, the, I'm uh, blocking on his name, but the guy who had the um, triangle of needs, um, physical housing and food and so on is at the base of uh, the needs. But relationships are the next level of need. And we des the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, and we desperately need to understand that our relational poverty uh, is just as important uh, as economic poverty. Now, I'm not saying that solving relational uh, poverty is going to end homelessness. But what I am saying is that, and what we say in our book, is that this is a critical element of our understanding of the issue. And we really need to pay much more attention to it. And I think that's exactly what Mother Teresa had said. You write as follows elsewhere. While data suggests that over 60% of Americans view the causes of homelessness 
as a variety of personal failings such as drug use, alcoholism, mental illness, laziness, and bad decisions. It is our goal in this book to prove that the real culprits are systemic in nature, inadequate housing and disastrous policy, housing policies, inadequate wages and poor jobs, health care and child care that are simply too expensive, health insurance that doesn't cover those most in need, an inhumane criminal justice system, transportation systems that do not meet the needs of those who desperately good, need good, low-cost public transportation, educational systems that fail to provide quality education for all students, and cultural systems that don't help people build or maintain social capital. In addition, profound failures in our basic humanity enable these broken service systems to remain broken. As seen elsewhere, relational poverty isolates many of those experiencing homelessness, depriving them of social capital resources that are so essential for a positive and successful life, and hostile and false stereotypes that view homelessness as a personal failing perpetuate the stigma that our unhoused neighbors live with, which has major implications for their overall health and well-being. But that is not all. Negative presumptions about who they are and where they came from lead to widespread official exclusion of our unhoused neighbors in a type of cruel modern equivalent of leper colonies, sometimes no more subtle than physically shipping people out to other states or homeless islands. Can you expand on this for us? Can you expound on the perspective presented here? Yeah, um, and I I think this is a, a way to uh, sort of uh, pull together some of the threads of what I've already said. Um, most of us don't understand the systems that are failing, uh, the housing and uh, housing policy, the inadequate wages and poor jobs, the health care, uh, health insurance, transportation, uh, and so on. But also, we don't understand the basic failures in our own humanity as we relate to people experiencing Um and because of all of that, we tend to have these very negative stereotypes, um, which uh, I've tried to uh, document in the course of the interview, uh, are uh, really false. Um, and so we keep people unhoused uh, with all of the implications of that, uh, forcing them to continue to live in uh, unsanitary, unhealthy uh, situations um, with a little economic, uh, with few economic resources. And we continue to view them as they uh, and them. Um, we have to change this dynamic. Uh, and we argue forcefully in uh, both the next to last chapter, we need to figure out ways of, of changing and improving systems that create barriers for people experiencing homelessness. And then in the last chapter, uh, what we can do to change our own relationships 
with those experiencing homelessness. Um, Leroy Pelton, uh, a, a social work professor, uh, wrote a wonderful uh, article, short article about 20 years ago about the deserving versus the undeserving poor. And Pelton basically argues, hey, look, we're all deserving. Uh, we <clears throat> grew up, um, uh, somebody called it um, ovarian, uh, um, oh, I, what did she call it? It was, uh, I, I'm now not remembering the term, but um, basically, uh, we're lucky who we are born to, who our parents are, uh, and um, that should not be uh, a basic decision about um, who is deserving and who is not deserving. Um, Palton argues that we're all deserving, that uh, we should uh, have an attitude of life affirmation for everybody. Uh, these, these folks are all our friends, former friends, neighbors, classmates, um, and they just about a bad break. Um, as I've said, 45% uh, uh, of those who are working, or um, of those who are experiencing homelessness, um, in fact, are working. So this puts to lie uh, the concept that get a job, you bum. Uh, there are 25% of the total population of people experiencing homelessness uh, have a mental illness. Uh, which is actually less than uh, percentages of the general population. Uh, substance disorders are much uh, lower uh, as a percentage of the total population um, than most of us think. Um, and if you stop and think about it, if your, your uh, significant other or a family member had a serious problem with housing or substance abuse or mental illness, we would be the first in line to provide assistance. People experiencing homelessness are no different. Why aren't we first in line to provide them with assistance? Uh, and because we're not, um, we exclude them and they become um, as we say in that quote, uh, the cruel old modern equivalent of leper colonies, outcasts, undeserved. That's just exactly the wrong approach. In what ways do persons experiencing homelessness suffer from paternalism? Well, I was talking about this a little earlier. Um, we tend to think that they're low income, so they're not very bright. And so they can't possibly understand what's important and good for them. Uh, and that's exactly paternalism is uh, deciding that somebody doesn't know uh, what's best for him or her. And so uh, we will make that decision for them. Um, the attitude 
at a stop at a uh, traffic light uh, is we don't want to give them money because they'll spend it on drugs and alcohol. Um, that's paternalistic. That's assuming that they are going to make a bad choice because they're not smart enough to know what uh, the money is good for. Uh, as I said, um, many of our federal benefits uh, are exactly the same way. Um, and one of the things about um, our federal benefit system is both um, food stamps and welfare uh, only go to about a quarter of the people who need them and are eligible for them. Uh, so, uh, but even there, uh, there are restrictions on what they can use the money for. Um, and all of this is paternalist. Uh, we hand some of us um, like to go at Thanksgiving or Christmas time and uh, go and serve food to people experiencing homelessness. It's much more important to give somebody some food and then go and sit down at the table with them and talk with them, get to know them. Uh, we have got to make more of an effort to um, get to know people experiencing homelessness. In what ways can readers and listeners outside the United States benefit from this study? How can other countries, cultures, and contexts where homelessness exists benefit from your insights? Um, I, I think the real lesson in, uh, well, two lessons. Uh, first of all, uh, the importance of remembering our humanity, uh, the Subtitle of our book is Forgotten Humanity. And uh, we document the ways in which, um, in terms of how we think about uh, how we look at people experiencing homelessness, we have forgotten the humanity of people. And I think this is a very, very important lesson for people uh, across the world across the globe. Uh, and I think some countries that do a much better job at this than we do, but all countries need to understand uh, the importance of remembering humanity. And in the course of that, uh, overcoming the kinds of stereotypes uh, that we tend to have. Uh, the other major lesson that I think our book suggests is the intersectionality of various systems. All really have, we really can't uh, continue to uh, approach all of the systems as individual silos. Uh, we have to try and think about all of them together and the ways in which uh, we need to address uh, the brokenness uh, and each of the systems. One of the things that's happened, uh, and um, this pleases me no end. Uh, I got an uh, email the other day from the chief of police in a small town in southwestern Virginia who had read our book and said, uh, this is very important 
I really need to incorporate this kind of thinking into the way that I deal with um, folks who uh, we are apprehending that people are all human, not just us versus them. And he said, I'm going to recommend that uh, police chiefs in various cities across uh, southwestern uh, Virginia read your book. Um, it was absolutely fascinating and so um, gratifying that the police chief of all people uh, would say that. And it's the basic message that I think is so important. Uh, we all need to remember humanity and that everybody is a human being. And I think this is a lesson for everybody around the globe. How have policies of deinstitutionalization impacted persons experiencing homelessness? Um, this is a uh, process that started in the 1960s under uh, Governor Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California. Um, and it was a way to uh, close down state mental hospitals that um, people thought were just terrible organizations uh, and create uh, public mental health, uh, community mental health centers uh, that would provide uh, a much more community-oriented setting uh, for people experiencing mental illness. Uh, part of the problem was that um, Yes, they closed the state mental hospitals, uh, but they didn't create enough uh, community mental health centers. Uh, as various people, including uh, E. Fulatori, have demonstrated, uh, the plan was for 2,000 to 3,000 community mental health centers to be created uh, across the country. Um, and they only created 800. So there was a, uh, a major deficit in uh, the kinds of uh, facilities that uh, would have uh, cared for uh, people experiencing mental uh, illness. And let's remember that uh, the state mental hospitals, bad though they may have been, were inpatient uh, care facilities. Uh, and one of the real problems with community mental health centers is that for the most part, they don't provide for inpatient care. Uh, it's all about outpatient care. Uh, what Ipolitori uh, calls the worried well, uh, not people with severe mental illness. Um, this has had a significant impact on numbers of people experiencing homelessness uh, who have some kind of a uh, mental illness. Um, and uh, during this same period, uh, the Veterans Administration and uh, our soldiers were coming home from um, Vietnam. They closed most of their uh, mental hospitals. So um, <clears throat> uh, once again, this added to uh, the numbers of people experiencing homelessness. Um, and this remains true today. We simply don't have 
uh, enough appropriate facilities for people with experiencing uh, mental illness. What do you mean by not in my backyardism or nimbyism? Can you explain? Uh, yeah, as as we talked about before, um, there's a large majority of people in this country who uh, really think homelessness is a problem and think we should be doing something to address it. However, most people say, you know, you address the problem, don't do it in my backyard. Uh, I don't want a, a temporary or transitional or permanent housing facility in my backyard. People are afraid uh, of what that might do to uh, the local uh, community neighborhood situation. Um, it's interesting because uh, this happens everywhere uh, across the country. Uh, it's happening uh, right now as we speak here in Denver. Um, and the the mayor is trying to create some uh, <clears throat> micro communities for people experiencing homelessness and neighborhood opposition. Uh, raises its ugly head, and uh, the manager has to withdraw uh, plans to uh, set up these micro-communities. Uh, again, most people think we need to do something to start dressing this. But don't do it in my neighborhood. The odd thing is that, um, for the most part, the experience has been that if you set up transitional facilities in a neighborhood, uh, none of the fears are realized. Uh, <clears throat> housing values don't go down. Uh, crime rates don't go up. Uh, trash uh, is uh, picked up and taken care of. Uh, and in all of the communities, typically, uh, in these uh, facilities, uh, there is fencing, there is 24-hour security, food uh, uh, is provided, uh, bathroom facilities are provided. Uh, so uh, the fears of the neighborhood opposition uh, are not realized. Uh, and yet people say, don't do it in my backyard. What are some new and innovative pr approaches to addressing housing shortages and creating new housing that are being experimented with? Uh, well, we talked a little bit about this before, but uh, <clears throat> 3D printing, uh, one of the things that we uh, uh, discovered as we did the research for our book was uh, you can print uh, 3D print uh, the uh, how, uh, the structures of housing uh, for uh, four to five thousand uh, dollars, which is a huge, uh, hugely different from uh, the cost of uh, actual uh, bricks and mortar construction uh, of housing units. Um, shipping containers. Uh, are being uh, retrofitted to provide housing. Uh, I mentioned tiny homes. 
uh, pallet homes, uh, safe outdoor spaces, uh, micro communities. Uh, all of these are approaches to um, uh, housing shortages. One of the things that's important for people to realize is that the actual construction, uh, if, if you go with the uh, more traditional bricks and mortar uh, approach, uh, the actual construction can take four to five years. Um, the first part of it is getting uh, tax credits, and that can take up to a year. Uh, and then design, uh, construction, uh, and lease up uh, will take an additional two to three years. Um, it's really important that people understand how long it will take and that we need to provide transitional housing uh, in the interim so we can get people off the streets. And that's what tiny homes, safe outdoor spaces, pallet homes, micro-communities are for. Uh, and we desperately need that. But not to jeopardize funding and uh, activity in terms of the development of permanent housing. Also, we need uh, mixed-income housing so that uh, the housing we do construct uh, is not all um, people experiencing homelessness. Uh, we don't want to create micro-ghettos. Uh, and the way to make sure we don't is to make sure that uh, multifamily dwellings are mixed income. Uh, we need to change uh, land use and zoning policies. Uh, and I mentioned this before. Uh, we've got to create more opportunities for multifamily dwelling development. Um, in Denver, for example, it can take uh, 8 to 12 to 15 to 18 months to get approval for uh, the development of, of housing. We have to uh, improve and reduce uh, the approval processes. Uh, we need to change the tax codes. Uh, we need more child tax credits. Uh, some places are now talking about renter tax credits. Uh, we really need to uh, explore uh, <clears throat> various ways of uh, improving the tax code. Um, and then, uh, and I mentioned this before, the right to housing. Uh, a couple of states have started a right to housing. We really need a national right to housing. So these are uh, a few ideas that uh, we talk about in the book, uh, and we need to um, push uh, the implementation of all of these uh, very hard. What are some examples of countries whose policies and approaches towards homelessness are more in line with what you would like to see in the United States? Uh, I have to confess, Ari, that I, uh, I have not studied uh, homelessness in other countries to any great extent. However, I do know that um, 
places like Scandinavia uh, have a much uh, different approach to people experiencing homelessness. Um, and the, the social safety net is much broader and more extensive um, without some of the kinds of, of uh, income barriers uh, that prevent some people in this country from taking advantage of benefits. Uh, and there's a much more will, much greater willingness to uh, provide housing uh, in Scandinavian countries. I also know um, in Australia, uh, the the continent as a whole um, has adopted uh, a much more positive and aggressive uh, approach to uh, dealing with the issue of homelessness. Um, so those are uh, a few examples of uh, places that I, I think we could learn a lot from. What do you consider your book's unique contribution to homelessness research vis-a-vis -vis other scholarship in the field of homelessness research? Um, again, uh, I think there are two major uh, contributions. One is the focus on humanity and the relationship that we all need to have uh, with people experiencing homelessness. Um, and this is a, a under-researched area that we really need to focus on. Uh, the other thing is the intersectionality of uh, the various arenas uh, that directly affect homelessness. Um, and so uh, rather than thinking only of housing, we need to think about healthcare. We need to think about unemployment income. Uh, we need to think about child care, transportation, uh, the education system, the criminal justice system, uh, et cetera. So uh, those are uh, the two arenas that I think uh, set our book apart from uh, the other research. And I would hope that uh, as people read our book, uh, they will become more uh, interested in expanding work in those two areas. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Um, one of the things that uh, both Kevin and I have done uh, is to uh, try and expand uh, the uh, publicity and marketing uh, related to the book. Um, and one of the things I should say is that our publisher, North Atlantic Books, has been just phenomenal in working with us to, uh, as I say, expand uh, the publicity and marketing. Um, I'm also involved in a number of conversations, interviews, uh, book signings uh, related to uh, the book. Uh, and that's been uh, a real uh, treat for me. Uh, we had an event uh, at a church uh, recently that was a sort of panel discussion where we had a chance to talk about um, various issues that were uh, directly related to uh, our book. 
uh, I did a, a book signing event in uh, on Boulder, which is a neighboring uh, community, uh, just this past week, uh, which was very interesting and very exciting. Uh, the other thing is um, we have this event coming, and I think I mentioned this, this event coming up in early December. Uh, we have uh, 300 copies of our book, which we are giving away to all of the attendees of the event. Uh, we will be uh, focusing uh, some attention on all of our organizational partners uh, who are directly involved in providing services uh, related to the issue of homelessness. Uh, and then it'll be a chance to celebrate the four of us uh, uh, for the first time we will all be together. Um, so uh, getting that together, planning that event uh, has all uh, taken some of my time. In addition, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been involved in, in trying to uh, understand completely uh, the issue of the values that underline uh, uh, NIMBYism. And uh, we're trying to put together a report about that, uh, which will be coming out uh, fairly soon, I think. Um, so, those are the kinds of things that I'm involved with uh, since the, uh, we finished up uh, our aspect of the, of the book. Uh, and it's been very exciting. Uh, one of the things that uh, I find, uh, we, I heard this last, uh, a week ago today, um, uh, the New York Times recently put together a, an article that said for most books, uh, they average a sale of 20 books in the course of the first week and maybe 500 books over the course of a lifetime. Um, they also said that only 2% of all books um, have a sales of over 5,000 copies. Well, um, our sales to date in the first week since it's uh, on sale date our sales are 4,300 copies, which means that uh, we are just short of uh, being one of the books in that 2% uh, of book sales. And in one category of nonfiction books uh, at Amazon, we are now the leading um, book. So, uh, we are a, in one category, we're a bestseller. Um, all of that's very exciting uh, uh, and very gratifying. I just hope people who buy the book actually sit down and read it uh, so that they uh, can uh, have some of the same uh, knowledge and experiences that uh, my co-authors and I have had. I'm so grateful for how far you've come since completing this book and have how much you've accomplished since completing this book. And I'm also so grateful to have had this time with you today in dialogue and for everything you invested and went through to bring this very book under discussion today into fruition for the benefit of all your readers 
and all who will grow and benefit from the wisdom you've presented to us in this wonderful piece of scholarship. Uh, thank you very much, Ari. And let me say again, how uh, very much I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you uh, and uh, to try and respond to the wonderful questions that you've asked. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and a treat for me to be part of this. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. I can hardly thank you enough for everything that you taught me and that you taught us during the course of today's dialogue and during the course of the conversation we had together. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude and cannot appreciate enough how generous you've been with your knowledge, erudition, and eloquence during the course of today's conversation. Thanks again, Ari. Uh, I, I, I hope we'll have a chance to talk about my next book, uh, if and when it ever uh, comes out. So thank you again. Thank you. As we end today, I'm your host on the New Books and Sociology podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Dr. Donald Burns, regarding the book that he has co-written with Kevin Adler, Amanda Ban, and Adriana Bilbiha, When We Walk By, Forgotten Humanity, Broken Systems, and the Role We Can Each Play in Ending Homelessness in America, published by, in Berkeley, California by North Atlantic Books, 2023. Dr. Burns is founder of the Burns Center for Policy Research at the Colorado Center on Law and Policy. Thank you.